Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Our good God, Father, and Savior, we give you thanks uh, for bringing us through the night to this present day. Grant that we would employ it in your service and help us uh, this morning as we study your word, uh, prepare us to make uh, a uh, sacrifice of praise to you. And I pray that uh, as we think about dominion and redemption and we consider your word, that you would um, turn us into people who are uh, worthy stewards of the world that you have won by your Lord, uh, our Lord Jesus. Because we pray this in his name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, well, welcome to the Sunday School for people with perfect marriages and family, right? If you'll, well, now that I say that, Rachel's not in here, I've just realized. So uh, ignore that comment. Now, this is, uh, you've saw the title, uh, you know why you're here, Dominion Through Redemption, okay, a survey. Um, that's a word, especially these days, uh, in our circles that gets thrown around a lot concept of dominion. Um, what we want to do is, just this morning, we're going to, obviously, starting from the back of what the Sunday School title is, it's a survey, okay? So you're going to have to bear with me. We're going to really focus in on Genesis 1 to 3 this morning, so if you want to turn there, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, we're going to focus in on Genesis, um, uh, but the rest of the, the time, and just depending on where we get this morning, uh, we're going to go a little faster, so we're going to blow through a lot of scripture really quickly. Uh, so if there's stuff that you want to get into deeper, you have a question, we went by something really fast and you thought I said something heretical or something like that, uh, you can ask me at the end. I'll leave plenty of time for questions um, and we can discuss at the back end of this. Um, Post-millennialism, right, one of the unique features of being in our denomination, in our church, uh, the thing that sets it apart from other eschatologies uh, is the concept of imminent dominion. Imminent dominion, okay? We believe that Christ currently reigns over all things, not just the church uh, and not just over a, a special section of the church who actually are the church inside the church. We don't believe that um, uh, he's not reigning until some sort of rapture, okay? Uh, dispensational premillennialism believes in immediate dominion, right? Uh, Christ is going to come, take away his church, seven years of tribulation, and then he'll set up his reign on earth, okay, for all times. Right now, the world is just kind of, you know, uh, going bad, careening off. We don't mess with culture. Uh, just try to get as many people to heaven as possible, and one day Christ will be king. Okay, that's premillennial position. Amillennial is sometime in the indeterminate future, Christ will be king. And right now, he's only king of the church in some spiritual sense. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with the world. Uh, but postmillennialism says he rules and reigns right now over all things. Okay? Uh, he must reign, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, quoting back Psalm 110. Uh, he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. Right? Our eschatology is summed up in that one adverb, until. Okay? He's reigning now. And that's what sets it apart. So that's, that's dominion. But it's, it's what we want to consider in this class, and the real crux of it, is how that dominion is extended in the world. 
we're all about wanting to extend and take dominion for Christ and as Christ's people, and that's good, but how do you do it is the question. What's the method and what are the current models before us? Um, so there's a couple as you're thinking about how the kingdom comes. You could be thinking of uh, maybe if you're old school, the theonomy position, right? Which is, uh, you know, your Bonson and your Gary North and all those guys you used to hear about uh, from back in the 80s who basically believe that dominion comes through some sort of judicial and political action, right? We will reign and Christ will establish his kingdom and all things will be well once we win get certain people into office once we lobby enough and they make laws that are in accord with Scripture, that's it. Okay, that's, that's the goal. And out from that, the rest of the culture. You have more recently um, uh, the Christian nationalism position, okay, the book by Stephen Wolf, um, which is pretty much dominion through socio-ethnic institutionalization, we need Western man to rise back up to his position of prominence, and if he can do that in the appropriate way uh, and hold on to it um, necessarily, and Wolf admits at the beginning of the book that it's not a practical theology, it's a political theology. Anytime he gets practical in the book, it's chapter 8, starting on page 326, when he says that we hang on to Christ's kingdom by revolution, if necessary, right? There's a violent bent to it. So that's another option. A third option is uh, Doug Wilson's Mere Christendom. Okay. Uh, he says, he has a whole chapter at the end of the book, starting on page 95, uh, dominion is going to come through evangelical persuasion. If we can preach the right messages and have enough people believe the gospel in this specific way, and if we can um, uh, offer up okay, enough prayers as God's people, God will change things. And the last one is, uh, most recently, some of you have probably seen the book that came out uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, uh, Andrew Isker's uh, Boniface Option. Um, in there, he suggests pretty much dominion through cultural evangelization. Um, we will win the world if we can um, make a concerted effort uh, to renew uh, our households and send our children out into the world. That's, that's the big idea behind it. It's, it's stuff you've heard uh, as well. So we've got all of these options before us that overlap. I'm not saying these are all, you know, individual things that never, never shall they meet. Um, they overlap and they share ideas. But one thing that we need to consider this morning, and I think part of the error of each of these positions, um, is that they all have a shared uh, lack of um, redemptive historical theology. They all have a lack of scripture basically, in them. It's full of scripture. It's full of verses. It's full of good ideas from parts of the Bible. But what each of these positions seems to be missing um, is a Genesis to Revelation consideration of how God expects us to take dominion, not coming up with our own post-liberal conservative uh, version of dominion taking and then slapping a Bible verse onto it. Okay? So what we want to do is go through scripture and see what God expects. What's his model? for our taking dominion. We are supposed to do that. That is our job. We are to extend the reign of Christ. Um, but scripture, rather than culture, or rather than biblical principles uh, applied just in individual situations, uh, all of scripture tells us how to do this. So Genesis chapter one, go ahead and take your Bibles and let's turn there and we'll start our survey here. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, stay with me. So what we're going to do now, I'm going to stop at certain points, just make a few comments. Uh, like I said, we're moving quickly. We're going to try to do all one through three today. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, I created the heavens and the earth. Notice that heavens in this passage is in the plural. Okay. Uh, and also notice that when we get to verse two, the concept of heavens totally drops out. The earth was formless and void, was without form and void. Two descriptions of what the earth is like. And then darkness, its situation, was over the face of the deep. Earth is a formless, uh, it has no shape, it's void, it's empty, and it's a giant water ball. Okay, in the beginning is all. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, the Father is speaking, the Son is the word spoken, as we know, and then the Spirit is hovering over the waters that's going to go out from the Father and the Son, proceeding from them uh, to bring creation about. And uh, what he's going to do, what we're going to see in the next uh, days of creation, we won't go through them all individually, uh, but the Spirit forms and fills by the Word in creation. The first three days, you get these realms, right, light and dark on day one. On day two, you get the expanse above, you get waters above, waters below. And then on day three, you get uh, the separation of land and seas. Uh, and actually, look down specifically at verse 11. We have these first three days of creation as forming. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing, uh, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. God makes a habitable world, and he forms it in order for it to be a place for man to dwell, and a place where man will eat uh, grain plants and fruit trees, uh, where he will eat in God's presence uh, with bread and wine. Smash up those uh, grain plants, you get bread, squeeze those fruit trees, and you get wine out. Okay? So that's the first three days. Uh, the earth is formless and void, and on days one through three, God forms the formless. Starting in verse 14, things change, though. God starts filling up those three forms. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, literally, uh, that word seasons, you might have a little footnote in your Bible beside that. It's festival times. Okay? The reason that the sun, moon, and stars are in the sky are to tell us when to celebrate, when to take that bread and wine into God's presence and enjoy them with Him. And for days and years, verse 15, And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So notice that. Uh, the sun, moon, and stars are in heaven as pictures of rulers. And what good rulers do is call people into festival times. All right, that's step one. This is our first lesson about what it means to have dominion. Okay? The sun, moon, and stars are images of the invisible heaven. God dwells in the highest heaven that we don't see uh, on day two, uh, when God separates the waters, you'll notice that the waters above are also called heaven. They have the same name because they share the same identity. It's only the sky heaven that we see is an image of the invisible heaven. 
And in that invisible heaven, God puts a picture of himself, the sun, moon, and stars, and all the hosts of heaven, as they're called, uh, the angelic uh, forms, which are always referred to as stars throughout Scripture. Okay? And these mark festival times. That's how they rule. Verse 18, we pick it up. To rule over the day and over the night, and to separate light from darkness. Okay, it's the second thing. They rule by marking festival times, and they rule by separating light from dark. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So uh, now in the realm of the waters above and waters below, he puts birds to rule over the air and he puts fish uh, to rule over the sea. Verse 24, we'll skip down. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, which uh, establishes uh, a clear analogy between man and animals. Right? Adam is also told to be fruitful and multiply, meaning that these animals are supposed to be pictures of what Adam and Eve are going to do. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. All right, so now we're at the pinnacle. Okay? Everything now is formed and everything is filled. And now God creates um, a perfect image of himself. Um, we are, notice the two sides of this image and likeness. Okay? There's a static thing and a dynamic thing. You can grow in your likeness to God or you can decrease in it. Uh, but the image of God is something stable something stuck, okay? And it is a, what we see is that it's a vocation. What does it mean to be in the image of God? We kind of throw that word around a lot in our Christianese. Well, they're in God's image. They're valuable, okay? We hear stuff like that all the time. But what image is, is being an imager. Look at the next verse. Let them have, excuse me, the next sentence. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, all right? To be God's image is to be a creature who takes dominion. Why? Because that's what God has been doing up to this point, right? Uh, think about that word. Let's just stop here and consider this for a moment. Uh, what does the word dominion mean? What's the root behind that? Uh, some of you good Latin students are probably uh, having a couple of ideas, and I see a couple of gentlemen who are from my class who won't spoil any of this for you. Um, that's right, you're getting high school lessons today. Uh, but dominion, okay, the root there is domus, okay? House is what's behind that, our home in Latin. Uh, think of your domicile or being domestic, okay? What dominion is, is house building, okay? What's God been doing in creation? He's been building a great cosmic temple palace, a big house where he and man are going to fellowship with each other. That's the whole point of creation. Now he makes man to assist him. Because what we see is that the house has built, the house that God has built, okay, it isn't perfect, right? What is it? It's good, right? It's not complete yet. So Adam then is going to grow up to be the one to assist God in this building project. He's a delegated authority, just like the sun, moon, and stars, just like the birds and fish, and just like the animals. Uh, pick up in 
Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We'll come back to the male and female side in just a moment in chapter 2. And God blessed them. Notice the first thing that God does for humanity. Gives his benediction to them because he loves his creatures. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Notice this, fill the earth and subdue it. What was the earth in the beginning? Formless and void. It needed to be formed and filled. What does he tell man to do? Form and fill it. Okay. So we see there that uh, this idea of dominion is, uh, there's a clear continuity between what God does and what man's called to do. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And, God, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And the heaven, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, the hosts above and the hosts below. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Okay, notice that word, holy. Um, this word is not going to come up again in Scripture until we get to Leviticus. Okay, excuse me, until we get to Exodus. Um, the idea of holiness is something we need to uh, hold in our minds here. The first thing that's created that's holy is a day, specifically, that's set apart. Hold that in your brain. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God works up to a point of rest. And what we're going to see from this point forward is man is called to uh, rest and then go out to work. Chapter 2. What we get in chapter 2, you probably people say something like there's some sort of discrepancy between chapters 1 and 2. Uh, it's a different creation account or something like that. What we see in chapter 2 is um, imagine like chapter 1 is a wide-angled lens. Okay, and you're looking at the big picture. You're seeing all of creation in one big, uh, one big uh, show. Okay? What we do in chapter 2 is zoom in specifically on days 6 and 7. Man is the pinnacle of creation, and this is his close-up in chapter 2. It's going to give us more detail. You're going to be able to see more features of what actually happened on day 6. These are the generations, verse 4, of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens... When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. So we see clearly there that um, the plants, at some, to some extent, were waiting on Adam before they would yield their fruit to him, because he was in this testing period. They're being incubated and saved uh, until he's there. Then Yahweh God formed the man, verse 7, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature, forming and filling again. Adam is formed and filled. He is shaped from the ground as the earth was shaped, and he is filled with the Spirit as the Spirit was moving over creation in, the first, in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. And the man became a living creature, verse 8. And Yahweh God planted a garden in the Eden in the east, you notice that. Very careful reading we have to do here. First of all, notice that Adam's already created. He is watching his father plant this garden for him uh, after his creation. Notice that uh, the garden is a specific place in Eden. 
uh, we have a tendency to think of all the world at this point as just you know, one big Garden of Eden. Okay, that's not the case. The garden is a specific section on the east side of this uh, place called Eden, and everything outside of that is outside of Eden. Okay, God is always making his house with three stories. At the earth, the firmament heaven, and the highest heaven. Now you have the land outside of Eden, the land of Eden, and the garden of Eden. Right? Uh, there's always three stories to God's house. You can think later in Scripture about Noah's Ark, which has three stories on it, as uh, the new house that's being created. It has doors and windows and a roof. Uh, you can think later about the tabernacle, which is the house where God dwells with man, and it's three sections, uh, the outer court, holy place, holiest place, temple the same way. Uh, always these three-layered houses that we see in Scripture. And here's another instance of that. So that garden is planted in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 9, And out of the ground that Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Okay, get that down. That's the first thing we have to consider before we read the next part. Every tree, everything that God made is good at this point. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, we'll circle back around to that idea in a moment, but just remember, everything is good. There's nothing inherently evil about this tree. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Here we get a little bit of the topography of Eden. Why is he telling us this? Well, think about where rivers come from. Okay? Uh, Ezekiel 28 tells us specifically um, that Eden is on top of a mountain. It's the holy mountain of God uh, where he comes and meets with man. Think about the rest of your Bible, and this would be clear. God always meets with man on mountaintops, Sinai or the uh, Mount of Olives or um, uh, any others that you can probably think of. Moses, uh, Noah landing on Mount Ararat. Right? Uh, God always meets with man on mountains. So here from that mountain flows a river, and we're told the specific names, verse 11, we won't go through them, but just notice the first river, we're specifically told is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. All right. If Adam wanted to make a necklace for Eve, he would have to cross the river, adventure out into the world, go retrieve the precious stones, and bring them back in. Right? It would be the beginning of our adventure stories that we would see uh, had the fall not happened. Uh, but notice this now. Adam is in this garden. It's a place that he's going to have to go out from and back into. Okay. Skip down to verse 15. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You might have a little footnote there uh, in your Bible if you're following along. And you'll note that the idea of working, keeping, literally that, that word keep, um, this is the first word you learn in Hebrew class uh, if you... If any of you have taken it, you can remember back that far. Uh, it's the word shamar in Hebrew. And it literally means to guard. Okay? Adam's job is to be the guardian of the garden. Um, and all through the rest of Scripture, uh, there's only one other type of person that's called to guard something. And that's the priests, specifically the Levites. The Levites are the ones who guard, keep watch over uh, the tabernacle. Uh, on behalf of the Aaronic priesthood. So this is setting up an idea for us. Adam is a priest in this garden. And just like a priest, 
he is given a commandment to follow. Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, dying you shall die. It's the literal translation there. Uh, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Uh, Your act of doing it will cause and be dying, and then you will ultimately die at the end of that transgression. So let's put all these ideas together here that we've just looked at in Adam's creation. It's all trying to communicate to us one thing, okay? His being a priest, uh, the prohibition of the tree, the river outside of Eden, uh, the fact that God formed and filled a son and placed him in a special place. It's all communicating to us the idea that Adam is in the garden to mature, okay? That's the whole point of what's going on here. Uh, Adam is a priest who needs to grow up to learn how to be a good king that knows how to take dominion over the creation. There's things that he has to wait on, specifically like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll talk about that for a minute. I know in my sermon a couple weeks ago, I mentioned this idea, and uh, I had a couple questions afterward. Uh, So I'd like to talk about it for just a moment. This tree of knowledge of good and evil, we've already established in verse 1 that it's inherently good. Uh, So then the question becomes, why is it prohibited? If it's a good thing, why would God withhold something good from Adam? And the answer, of course, is that he's immature. Knowledge of good and evil is a phrase that occurs in Scripture over and over again. Uh, It's not just this one instance. And in fact, one thing that you have to remember as you're reading Genesis specifically is that context determines content. Uh, This is something that, this is the first lesson uh, that I teach my students. They're smiling at me now. Context determines content. Uh, meaning, you have to think about Moses is writing this while he is journeying through the wilderness with Israel. What do they already have? They already have people called sons of God who are called to guard these special places where they meet with God. Um, they already have commandments from God about what they can eat and what they can't eat, right, uh, as they're wandering through the wilderness. Uh, and also, all through the Torah and beyond, the idea of knowledge of good and evil comes up over and over again. The knowledge of good and evil is simply the ability to make royal judgments. That's what it is. Uh, we see this in Deuteronomy 139, 1 Kings 3.9. This is what Solomon prays for uh, uh, over the kingdom. Sometimes we uh, simplify that and say he asked the Lord for wisdom, and he was granted wisdom, and that's true. But what he specifically asks for is the ability to discern between good and evil because he is but a youth, he says. He's immature. He needs to grow up. He needs to make wise decisions about what's right and what's wrong because he's going to be called on to make royal decrees. Adam is not ready for that. He needs to grow up. At this point in the story, he doesn't even have a wife yet. He's a child. He's also naked like a baby. Okay? Uh, all these ideas clarify this for us. Um, So we can come back to that. You can ask questions at the end if you want about this. Dominion requires maturity that's going to come through patient faith in God's Word. Learning to be a good priest comes before learning to be king and being a good king. Learning to simply obey just because God said so is the first step to dominion. He needs to cultivate himself as he cultivates the garden. Verse 18, let's continue on. 
Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Um, now out of the ground that Yahweh God had formed, every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Anybody feel the jarring uh, kind of weird transition there? It's not good that man's alone. Hey, Adam, what would you call this? What's going on here? Why is there a seemingly strange break in the story? Um, we find out ultimately at the end. Verse uh, 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper found for him. Right? Adam is given this task of naming the animals. It's part of his growing up. He needs to realize that taking dominion, forming and filling, is something that he can't do on his own. He needs somebody. Literally, think about it. It's not rocket science. He can't fill the earth by himself. Right? Think about that one for a minute. It'll really bake your noodle. Okay? Uh, he can't fill the earth by himself. Right? He needs someone to do that with. And the animals do not make good helpers for forming. They can do certain things, but they can't get him far enough. He's going to need more human help. So this is his first lesson that he gets from God. What you need to do, you can't do alone. Dominion is not a one-man show. Okay? It's not taking up and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and marching out across that river and getting the gold and building the palace. It's something that you have to have not only help, feminine help to do. Let's keep reading. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed the place with the flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, the first words that we see humankind uttering in Scripture, a bit of poetry okay, that he sings over Eve. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, Yesha, because she was taken from man, Yish. Okay, those words in Hebrew communicate the idea of fire. That's the root of both of those. Woman is the great fire, and man is the little fire. Yish and Yesha. She's the eschatological glory fire. And he's a uh, Adam, dirtbag. Okay, he's just a little fire. Uh, that's what Jim Jordan always says. Uh, if you're familiar with him, he calls Adam the first dirtbag. Uh, never runs out of good things to say. Verse 24. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They're both in this place now of growing up. Okay. They're not ready for royal decrees. They're not ready to establish the kingdom. But they are ready for simple obedience. Adam now has the task of guarding the garden, which takes the explicit form of guarding his wife here very soon. And uh, not only growing himself up, but also leading her and maturing her as well in this process. Chapter 3, though. We all know what's coming. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. All right, before we jump into the story, we've got to remember a couple things. What does Jesus teach us about serpents in the New Testament? What does he tell us about serpents? We're to be uh, innocent as doves, but wise as serpents, okay? Uh, first thing you need to settle in your mind, remember everything is good in God's creation at this point. Whatever the serpent is doing here, and also God doesn't allow things to happen by accident. This is a uh, Presbyterian church, as you know, right? 
All things are ordered by providence. Uh, this serpent is not in the garden accidentally or outside of God's control. And beyond that, serpents, uh, the fact that he's crafty, you shouldn't imagine that as immediately a bad thing. He's wise. That's the whole reason he's there. Uh, serpents are wise, and they're not evil to begin with. The serpent, uh, this shares another uh, Hebrew word. We usually call, we know this is Satan, right? Satan, another name for him is Lucifer, right? Uh, which carries the idea of light, bearing light. That comes from Isaiah chapter 14. Satan, and uh, uh, he's there to do what in the beginning? Well, he tempts Adam and Eve to enlighten themselves by the tree, okay? The reason the serpent is here in the beginning He's purposefully placed there as a teacher of wisdom. Okay, get that down. That's, that's the first thing you should settle. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 is where this is coming from. Um, uh, it's the speech that God gives to the king of Tyre, which uh, typologically reads back into Satan uh, and Lucifer here at the beginning. And he says, You were an anointed guardian cherub placed on the holy mountain of God. Okay? His job was to be Adam and Eve's guardian in the beginning. He was placed there, like all the angels we see in Scripture, to lead and guide humanity. Think about all the angels that you see uh, throughout the Bible. Every time they show up, they're moving man along in his maturity. Daniel gets these visions about what world history is going to be like from, uh, from Gabriel, right? Um, we go forward, see Gabriel pop up again, okay, in the New Testament. He leads um, uh, the, the, the disciples after the resurrection tells them what's happened. Hey, remember, go to that mountain. He's, he's going to meet you up there right? when he's speaking with uh, Mary. Anytime that angels show up, uh, Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, I think it is, uh, that um, uh, the angels were the ones that gave the law at Sinai. Okay? Angels are always the ones that are helping humanity grow up. That's why Satan is in the beginning in the garden. He's an anointed guardian cherub placed in the garden to guard. But, of course, we know that he doesn't keep that position, right? The first time we see him doing anything, it's a sinful temptation, okay? Something has happened in Satan, Ezekiel 28 tells us. Remember that man was created to mature, okay, into God's image fully. Man is ultimately, we know from Revelation, called to grow up even over the angels. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, we'll judge the angels like Matt mentioned in his sermon a few weeks ago. Uh, in Revelation chapter 5, the angels fall off their thrones to worship the Lamb. And who takes their place? The elders. Human people take their place on those thrones. Satan knows that he's only there like the drill sergeant to officers. Right? You have someone who's a lower rank than you, or one day will be, right? Am I getting this right? I could be messing this up completely. Yeah. You've got, a, you've got a chief sergeant, and then when the... I'm just thinking of um, Officer and a Gentleman, okay, that movie. Uh, when uh, he's, got, he's a sergeant there, and at the end, what's he do? Uh, after the cadets graduate, he has to salute them, because now he, uh, they are higher than he is, right? That's Satan's whole job. Grow up Adam and Eve. Guard them as they're learning to guard. Teach them wisdom as they're waiting on wisdom. Uh, give them light. Enlighten them as they are waiting for the full enlightenment, okay? Um, and we see that he is prideful. This is where the idea of pride in Satan comes from. He doesn't want to lose his place and his power and his position. He wants to hold on to it. And so he says to the woman, did God actually say, 
you shall not eat of the tree of the garden, of any tree in the garden. Notice how he just uh, uh, blatantly uh, overextends what God said to make him look uh, mean and awful. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any tree that is in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Here's where the lie comes in. Here's the deception. But notice what he says. Satan has now become the false teacher of humanity, the first false teacher, the first false prophet, when he was supposed to be the first good teacher, the first true prophet, and the first model for humanity. You will not surely die, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, notice that. The second part of that's not a lie. That is what would happen. They would be like God. In fact, that is exactly what happens after they eat. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired, notice, what would this tree do? It was desired to make one wise, to give one the ability to make those kingly decisions. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam has failed in his job to guard the garden because he's failed in his primary responsibility to guard his wife from the serpent. And standing there the whole time, watching it take place. Then the eyes of them both were opened. Notice it wasn't a lie. Okay, the temptation and the you won't die part was the lie, but their eyes are actually opened. It does what it says it would do. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Funny reaction, right? Uh, the first thing that happens, they don't realize that they sinned. They realize that they're naked. Okay? They realize that they have grasped for something that they weren't ready for. They realize that they have taken on themselves a position that they don't have the clothes to fit into. They've taken upon themselves the ability to do something. Uh, and shame, it's the first uh, uh, imposter syndrome here, if you've ever heard people talk about that. You get put into a position that you volunteered for, or you made it sound like you knew what you were doing, right? You actually had no idea what was going on. And so when you get into that position, you think, uh-oh, okay, I need some fig leaves. <laughs> I need some coverings uh, to help me out with this. Adam and Eve, remember the context again. Context determines content. They were called to grow up and be kings, all right? Kings and queens of the world, rulers who take dominion, who love their people by calling them into festival times like the sun, moon, and stars. And instead now, they have grasped at their authority that was promised to them. Okay? And so they don themselves with royal robes. Okay? This is like having a president who's a kindergartner, and he's wearing a suit that's way too big for him because he needs to look the part. Okay? Uh, think about how Genesis ends with Joseph being robed three times, not grasping at it, but he's always given robes right? that signify his authority. Now Adam and Eve have robed themselves. They make the judgments now. We're ready to rule. This is the first autonomous decision of man, the first flouting of God's commandments in favor of human rule. Uh, let's uh, finish up here with chapter 3. Uh, we'll run through this quickly. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, God comes down on a specific day, this is the Sabbath, okay? 
I've got an article on this. I won't stress this point if you want to go on the TRC website, uh, blog and read it. Um, uh, God comes down in the spirit of the day. He comes down on the day of the Lord, the Lord's day, what we would call Sunday. Okay? And he comes down like he does every Sunday here to us to a place where bread and wine are set, okay, where he meets with us to make a judgment. All right? So the sound of judgment comes. They hear him coming. The way that we have it translated because... Um, uh, because publishers like royalties, right? And they don't want a trans translation and people not buy their Bible anymore. It's translated like God is just coming for a stroll, right, through the garden. And, hey, where's Adam and Eve? Okay, much different. He's coming down, and it's loud. There are trumpets blasting, like every time God comes down. There's glory. There's the spirit of the day, this bright, shining presence. And so Adam and Eve, naturally, if he's coming through a stroll... Okay, coming through like a stroll, they're not going to hide. Okay? But he's coming down to judge. And man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees at the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Interesting. Uh, does he know where he is? Yes. Unquestionably. Right? Uh, what's going on here? He's, this is a test of Adam and Eve's judgment. All right, you've taken this upon yourself now. Tell me where you are. Tell me what you're doing. What have you done? Uh, if you think you have this position, tell me, okay, and that you are ready for this. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Opportunity for confession, right, kids? When your parents come to you, they know what you did. They just want you to tell them. The man said, yes, I have done it. I have sinned. I take upon myself the responsibility. Now, what's Adam's first judgment? His first royal decree? The woman. And it's not only the woman, right? The woman that you gave me. Adam's first royal decree is a judgment on God himself. How's that for immaturity? Right? Definitely not ready for the position that he's been placed in. Then... Uh, then Yahweh God said to the woman, verse 13, what is this that you've done? Okay, yes, she did offer it to him. He recognizes that. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She also shifts the blame. Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.